today on Growth Mindset University. For me, getting notoriety was honestly about filling a hole in my soul, right? Like I didn't have very good parents. You're listening to Growth Mindset University, educating tomorrow's leaders with lessons from today's entrepreneurial elite. It's a progressive new age of business we find ourselves in, and we'll help you find the success you seek by listening to today's industry professionals and thought leaders teach us the lessons we should have learned in school but didn't. Now, please welcome your host, Jordan Paris. My guest today is Tucker Max. Tucker is the co-founder of Scribe Media, a company that helps you write, publish, and market your book. And the current CEO of that company is our friend, previous podcast guest, JT McCormick. He's written four New York Times bestsellers. Three of them hit number one. The four have sold over 4.5 million copies worldwide. He's credited with being the originator of the literary genre, Fratire, and is only the third writer after Malcolm Gladwell and Michael Lewis to ever have three books on the New York Times nonfiction bestseller list at one time. He was nominated to the Time Magazine 100 Most Influential list in 2009, and a movie was made about his life called I Hope They Serve Beer in Hell. He wrote a book uh, by the same title, Tucker Max. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, man. At Tucker Max on Twitter, if when people hear something and get curious about you, you can find you there. Scribewriting.com is at your company. And then TuckerMax.com. People can find you in all of those places. So let's uh let me start out with this. Are you still banned from Embassy Suites? <laughs> Dude, I don't know, man. I haven't stayed in, I haven't tried to stay in Embassy Suites in probably twenty years, so it's low end now. So, well, yeah, let's fill in the knowledge gaps here. Why do you hope they serve beer in hell? <laughs> I mean, I, I, I don't. It's a book title, man. Yeah, it's of course. A, it's a funny, clever book title. Yeah. You know, reading that book, I was, you know, shocked at some of the things as many were. Like, you would think, like, why isn't Tucker Max canceled yet? But somehow, like, you get away with saying so many things, whereas, like, you know, if a professor at a university were to say one of those lines in that book, they would be canceled and like done so. You know the saying that one scratch ruins a table, but a thousand scratch scratches give it character? Mm. Uh, well, there's that. And then there's also the fact that cancel culture is entirely bullshit. And the only reason that uh, it has any power is because people pay attention to it or because they're suits that are subject to other people's whims and desires. I'm an entrepreneur. I don't have to answer to anybody. Right. I don't even have to answer to my customers. And now if I don't, I won't be successful. <laughs> but but like I I I like you can't cancel someone who's their own man. Just not how it works, right? Yeah. You can only you can only cancel sheep. And I think that's the of course, as you mentioned, the benefit of creating your own path, being an entrepreneur. But that wasn't, I don't think your, was that your original intention? Because you went to law school, you were going to be a lawyer where, you know, you were going to have to probably answer to some people. Yeah, of course. That's why, that's why I didn't want to do it, man. It's the worst. Well, when did you realize you didn't want to do it? When I got fired. Uh-huh. <laughs> that would be the beginning. I mean, like I got fired three weeks into my legal profession, but here's the, here's the reality though. Um, I, 
I was 25, right? And I was not a self-aware 25-year-old. I was very much the opposite. And so um, the way that that I went about my legal career, I was essentially creating a situation where I had to be fired. And I think that unconsciously I was just doing that to myself. I was like, all right, like I know I'm not going to be able to survive in this environment. And, and I don't just mean like, of course I could literally survive, but um, I wouldn't keep my soul, right? And I just wasn't going to do that. And so it was like, all right, I'm going to act the way I want to act and then force them to fire me and then I'll have to go do the thing I should be doing anyway. But I didn't have the courage to admit to myself at that point. So you start you start writing at some point, mm-hmm. right? Like About two years after that. Two years after? About, actually, about a, yeah, about a year after I got fired or so. So well, were you- then I, I went to work for my dad. Who, oh, okay. Who, I was going to say, like, were you a yeah. deadbeat for a year? <laughs> I was a deadbeat for a while. There's no uh, doubt yeah. about well, that. Well, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, was, I was working for my dad. Um, he owns a bunch of restaurants in South Florida. And then he fired me from the family business. And then at that point, like, it was like, okay. I, then I was basically a deadbeat. I was, I kind of, my friends loved my emails. I thought they were the funniest thing ever. So they, um, that's the game. Um, so uh, uh, it was on the bottom of the mic. I didn't gotcha. see it. Yeah, yeah, I see it <laughs> yeah. <now> too. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so they, uh, what they did was they uh, were like, "Look, dude, you're a good writer. Like, this is the thing you should be doing." And so, as I started my writing career, this is you know in 2002. This is before. I don't want to say before the internet, but it was like before the internet was the internet. There were like 20 or 30 million people on the internet at that point. And like, like the big sites were like GeoCities and Lycos and shit like that. And so, um, uh, never even heard of them. Exactly. Right. Cause you're a millennial. You barely even know what Yahoo is. Right? I barely. Exactly. Right. And, and so, um, anyway, so I, uh, I started writing and then that's when I was a deadbeat because like I was, I forget what I had to do to make money, man. This is before it was easy to make money on the internet. Like I hosted, do you know what speed dating is? I hosted speed dating sessions and then yeah. I did, um, I did a bunch of other stupid odd jobs, but I was basically the way I f- ate protein is I would like hook up with or date girls who had money because they all do. They had jobs. And then I would make them buy me dinner. (laughs) I would have them bring food over and like, there you go, man. It was, it was, that was, I had to, I had to hustle essentially. And, uh, and it's why I had, if I wasn't good with women, I didn't eat for a few, for a period in my life. And that was when I was a deadbeat, but then the writing eventually took off and now, you know, sold millions of copies and now here I am. To fill in this, uh, you know, this knowledge gap here, uh, people may be wondering, you were, you were writing about your drunken sexual encounters. Is that, ac- is that accurate to describe it? Like yeah, that, I mean, is that fair? Yeah, it's, it's all the dumb shit that everyone does in their 20s. I did the same stuff and I just wrote about it. What, what, what made you decide to write about that? Like the first, the first one, right? So, yeah. So, dude, it was emails to my friends. That's it. Like I was writing emails to my friends. Okay. Yeah. Right, right, right. I get it now. But eventually, I think you, I heard you say once you intentionally sought out fame. Is that correct? Every writer does. (laughs) Aren't you? Every podcaster Mm, does. mm. For a lot of podcasters, it is is a self-image pursuit. Every YouTuber does. Yeah. I think, well, I think there's a, maybe there's a negative connotation around it. Like, you know, making people feel guilty 
about uh, about doing that. That's a fair point, Tucker. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <It's>, like, <laughs> I mean, we we all do, man. Why? Like, I, Why do you I, think we do that? So, okay, different people have different reasons, right? Like, uh, I the the reason I I can tell you what I did. I can't tell you why you are. I can tell you why I did. For me, um, getting notoriety was honestly about filling a hole in my soul, right? Like I didn't have very good parents and they weren't bad people. Like they didn't molest me or beat me or anything like that. They were just really bad at being parents. Like I was a really lonely kid because they weren't around. And so um, like that creates a wound in you, right? You don't feel seen, heard, valued as a child. And so, and again, I only understand this now. I did not understand this in my 20s or even 30s hardly. And, um, and so, uh, what, how do you solve that? There's a lot of ways, but most people solve it indirectly. Right. And the, the way I solved it in short was, all right, parents, if you're not going to pay attention to me, fuck you, I'm going to make the world pay attention to me. And then you have to see, right. It's why, why kids act out, right. Same thing. Um, they want attention. I mean, that's, again, I can't speak to anyone else with specificity, but that's why I did it. Now, that makes sense. Now, no, hold on. Like, but see, but feeling it's not an, like, an inferiority gap, perhaps. Ba- even. Basically, right? But it's not. It's not that simple, right? It's not like because when you're creating something, right? It's not like uh, like you know a podcast or you're creating YouTube videos. You're writing it. It just because you're the energy you draw that motivation from um, uh, is from trauma it doesn't necessarily pollute or deny or negate the art you create you know not at all like Mm. most of the greatest artists of all time were deeply troubled and wounded in a lot of ways right so like there's nothing i i don't see anything necessarily wrong with that it's a way i was it's a method i was using to solve uh an issue i had you know, fame isn't the effective way to solve that issue. Like, uh, you know, I, no, it doesn't as work As you well. soon found out. Exactly, as I soon found out. But in the interim, I created some amazing writing that made mil- tens of millions of people laugh and enjoy and learn and all that sort of stuff, right? So, like, it's it's not... People try and make it cut and dry, but it's not. Yeah, and this is something that I've uh, almost only recently started you know, opening up to at least my friends around me. This will be the, perhaps the first time I speak about it publicly. You know, when I was in high school, I had this one friend, his name was Peter. And I, I just felt that like people did not like me. It wasn't true at all. Right. It, it was completely like a complete drama made up in my head. Uh, but, you know, after I got out of high school, it seems like, it, you know, a lot of the things that I did from that point on, you know, were with like attention in mind and like proving people wrong, you know, and, and, and creating this, this notoriety. And, uh, like, I'll admit it, you know, I did a lot of things for attention and it's like, and it's okay. It doesn't, and it doesn't, as to your point, doesn't mean like my work is bad, right? It doesn't negate it. Uh, so I think that's an empowering way to look at it for sure. But as you soon found out, it wasn't the way to uh, fill the hole uh, wasn't an effective way to do that, and you and it, I guess it all came crashing down after they made the movie, uh, right? 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, it's funny. It came crashing down in in the. It's like, it almost makes me laugh because it is like the ultimate rich white person problem. Right. Like, uh, <laughs> so like think about this. So my book was number one on the New York Times bestseller list, and a movie about my life came out. And the movie wasn't a blockbuster hit, and it was like a totally crushing blow to me, right? <laughs> Which is like, <laughs> like, when you think about it rationally, like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Right. But if you understand the way the mind works, it's like, oh, I totally get it, right? Like, it, may, it totally makes sense because you're using these things to essentially chase away the negative emotions and the trauma you don't want to feel, right? And so, like, it was... It, it, then, but it went even deeper, man. It was. It wasn't just the lack of success. It was that, like, you know, I'd started years before that, like with a. I didn't even have a dream. I was just like, man, like I, I want to be able to afford protein, right? And then it was like, all of a sudden, I had everything I ever dreamed plus way more. And I, it's like, make no mistake about it, man. Being rich and famous is way better than being poor and broke and unknown. Like that, that or anyone who tells famous you that's and broke. Yes, which is the worst. Like, that's, that's the worst. Famous and broke, broke is the worst by far. Like I'm not even, I, I, like I'm not even putting that on this category. Like having <laughs> having money is always better than not having money, right? For sure. Uh, just all of the things being equal. Do you ever but, wish that that you could like just. Live a quiet life, though. No, it wouldn't work for me. No, it wouldn't work. Okay, continue. I, I mean, at least not in the reality we live in. Like, I could imagine a world where everyone's way better than me at shit, and I had to be a janitor, and I'd be like, okay, if that's the reality I was in, I would be cool with it. But I'm just, that's just not the reality we live in, you know? Like, um, anyway, so so what I realized was um, it took me a while. Like, I, I, got, I got to the pinnacle, and and like and almost everyone successful will tell you this, you get to where you were struggling to go for years or even past it, and you get there and you realize, is this it? Is this what I worked all that like? Because when you're poor and broke, you can't even imagine that like you think money will solve your problems or fame will solve your problems or whatever. Insert whatever it is you're chasing. Money you solves some once, problems. It, it does. It's also a very few. Where are you going to sleep? What are you going to eat? Are you anxious about like paying bills? Absolutely, right? But those Ab- are above not- $70,000 is like diminishing returns probably. Yeah, that data is, I don't know how much, bull, that data, I don't know how true that is. But there is a point of diminishing returns for, pe- for all people, right? And so, uh, but the, the point uh, though that I'm making is that like you get to the point where it's like, this is, I didn't... Th- I'm here and things are a little bit better than they were before, definitely, or even much better, but they're not at all where I imagined them. Like, I'm still not happy, right? I'm not satisfied. I'm not content. And so then, like, I fixed everything in my life, man, best shape ever, all the, everything external possible to fix, right? And again, it was a little bit better, but it was like, this is, this is not what life is supposed to be. And so eventually I was like, okay, well, I'm the only thing left. You know, like, you know, the, the, like the, the girl who's always like, oh, I don't know why I keep dating assholes. And it's like, well, you're the only thing in common, right? <laughs> well, the same thing was true with me, right? Like I fixed everything in my life and it was, everything was amazing. And I was still kind of miserable and it's like, okay, well, I'm the only thing left. And so like, then I started therapy and then I kind of walked that path, you know? Yeah. And people go all different places. They want to, you know, they want to get out of this area and you know, they can't wait to leave. And I'm like, yo, like, cool it. You know, wherever you go, there you are. Like that that quote. I mean, it might be a little different, but 
It holds true. Uh, it doesn't, doesn't, uh, it's not going to solve your problems. It's going to be, you know, you, you might feel for like a week, oh, this is great, but it's going to revert right back to like, you know, feeling uh, normal again, you know, and you're going to be like, oh, then, then, then you're going to want to go somewhere else and then somewhere else. It's like, uh, it's like a football player or like an athlete that just keeps bouncing around the league. They have problems in like every single locker room they're in. It's like, you know, Antonio Brown, right? Antonio Brown wanted to like get away from the Steelers. He wasn't getting along with everyone. Goes to the Raiders and then Bam, within, within a two yeah within like a couple of months he's like he's donezo <laughs> and then and then the Patriots and then uh and now now he's back in school darn <laughs> yeah what, what I always like to tell I have friends who do marathons or whatever ultra marathons or triathlete and I'm like it doesn't when you finish the race your problems are still going to be with you you know <laughs> and they're all like yeah that's not why i race i'm like yeah it is because you're running from your shit but it's still going to be there because the problem isn't the lack of a marathon you know yeah dude 100 percent. yeah so would you say in that uh in that rough period were you depressed would you call yourself that i, I, I dude i was definitely sad and lonely i don't know about depressed i don't know who like I like I never took any antidepressants. I never I know people who are seriously depressed and I don't I don't want to put myself in their category just because I feel like it, it it's almost disrespectful to them. Like I know people who've battled serious depression. Like they can't get out of bed and all that stuff. And I was never in that category. Um but like we all climb our own mountain, dude. So for me I was I was it was it was not good. Yeah. So then you muster up the courage to go to uh you get a psychoanalyst right yeah so there's tons of forms of talk, talk therapy the one that i ended up with was called psychoanalysis and so i spent four years going four times a week and like you know i do it i'm all in like let's go right and it was really good it was great it gave me a fantastic map of my mind and my emotion emotions and helped me really understand myself in a lot of ways that i didn't before um the problem is, like, it, I can see now, I didn't quite understand at the time, but the thing that, that I didn't get out of it was feeling those emotions, right? Like, I understood what I was thinking and feeling and why, and I really got a good handle on sort of my brain. I got a good mental map, but I didn't, it's like I didn't walk the territory, you know? I didn't really experience it. Um, what did you, hmm... You didn't really experience it. I didn't experience my emotions, dude. That's what, they, like, the uh, people, a lot of people think that intellectually understanding their problems is enough. It's not. Uh, maybe no, in business, but not, not, not for emotional issues. It just doesn't work. Um, it's, it's a good place to start, um, but it's not the solution. Like you've yeah. got to actually feel your your issue. For most emotional issues, you've got to actually feel to get past the problem. Yeah, I have this one friend of mine that I always go to for you know, for advice on certain things. Uh, you know, he's a little, he's a couple years older than me, and uh, you know, he always tells me these things uh, for years. He's told me things, uh, advised me, and I never like, I never truly understand it. To your point. Until like I actually experience it for myself, I don't listen to him until like 
Yeah, it's like I got to end up uh, at the end of the day, like I got to be the one that like goes through it to make myself really realize like and then I come back to him I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, you are right. <laughs> and then I start acting in accordance to his advice from that point forward. So I agree with you there. But then so after four and a half years of the uh, psychoanalysis, now you're in a new journey. You are trying uh, plant therapy. And what 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 are you calling it? What, or what what is your plant medicine? What, whatever. No 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 no. In the article, uh, the lotus, the oh, lotus, lotus flower. flower technique. Yeah, no, that's yeah. Just something my guide <laughs> told me. No, well, basically, I'm doing MDMA and psilocybin therapy. And why? Why do you like? You feel like because it works. Because it. <laughs> it works amazingly well, dude. Yeah. Yeah, like I mean, I like I'm willing to try almost anything that that has some success, dude. I tried yoga. I tried like get on the list of EMDR, and most of the things didn't work. They didn't work, or I would, and it, nothing even against them, because God knows for some people yoga saves their life, and for some people EMDR EMDR uh, EMDR is the thing. Great, but it didn't work for me, and. Um, MDMA therapy is what kicked it open for me, man. And that blew the doors off. It was amazing. Man, it was the first time in my life I ever really, truly felt love. Like, it was the first... Like, I had a flood of emotions um, that, like, either I had never felt or I had never felt to that depth. Like, it was like... What what MDMA does, basically. So, MDMA is the, the active component in ecstasy. But you just take pure MDMA, and it's not much. It's like 180 milligrams. And you put on an eye shade and you kind of lay back on the couch and then you have a guide there, like someone who's, who's trained to do this. And um, what it does, all MDMA does is that it triggers your brain essentially to dump all the serotonin, right? And so you get like, your brain basically feels safe and it feels love. And then all of this sort of trauma or the pain or the stuff that you're hiding from or not willing to feel or repressing or whatever, it has space to come up so that you can actually feel it and then let it go. Right. And so like it was, dude, it was uh, breathtaking, man. It was. So that really allowed you to feel, feel love. I thought, so when I took, uh, I, I guess it was, um, I guess it was a couple of months ago. Yeah, it was over summer. Took a microdose of uh, mushrooms. So is that is that what psilocybin is? I'm gonna, I sound really stupid. Yeah, psilocybin. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So so I took a microdose of that, and that is like I felt. That reminds me of what you're talking about there with MDMA. Like I just I people ask me, you know, I mean, granted it was only a microdose, but people ask me like how it felt, and I I literally just say love like i was love for a little while uh and i like i know what you're talking about so what's your experience then with psilocybin so psilocybin i did about six sessions five six sessions of mdma and then um mdma therapy and then i moved to psilocybin therapy and it, it like it's fantastic dude it's totally different psilocybin is a very different compound that psilocybin is a psychedelic mdma is not mdma like i felt very lucid on it very sharp i knew you know my name what time i what time it was like it it just it all it does is it increases serotonin you feel a little out of it but that's about it mushrooms depending on the dose 
I mean, you go to other fucking planets, man, if you take a lot of that stuff, right? Yeah. Now, uh, microdoses, like you talked about, like um, tend to be really effective for things like depression and other stuff. Um, but like I, I take more th- like higher doses. Um, so anywhere from two to four and a half grams is usually what I do. And man, it's, it's intense, dude. Like it, and it, it, what mushrooms again, like very sort of, uh, surface level explanation. Mushrooms basically reset the brain, right? So, so for example, like, um, let me think of a really good example. So like, uh, I, I, I had, there's a friend of mine, an ex friend of mine who like, we were really close and we kind of had a falling out and I hadn't talked to him in a while and what I had certain thoughts about him and who it was and the thoughts don't really matter, right? But like on MDMA, he came up and I realized like a lot of things, like what I contributed to kind of the falling out, I saw it a lot clearer, mm. you know? And then I, I kind of understood his position and I kind of realized, all right, and then I forgave him for the things that he did wrong me. I apologized for the things I did wrong. Um, although there really weren't many cause a lot of it, whatever, it doesn't matter. But I, I uh, so I kind of like let all that negative energy go. And then I just like, like, it was like, I got past it. Right. Except I kept thinking there's certain things that would trigger me to think about him, or I would have thought patterns that were still kind of, let's just say chiseled in right to the brain, like, like neuro- neurological patterns. And so I did a mushroom session about a month later and it was like, it was the first one I did, the first big one. And it was like the next time I, after the session, the next time I thought about him, it was weird. It was like, all of that was gone. Not just the en- the emotional energy, which the MDMA helped me release, but it was like the old thought patterns were gone, right? And so like you can Google psilocybin reset the brain and see like all the studies about this, like like how it works and why it works. But basically it allows your brain to uh, cut old connections and reform new ones. Now, granted, you've got to do the work, right? For MDMA and psilocybin, both. They're not magic pills. Like, I don't just take them and everything's better in my life. No, no, no. What, what they do is they they bring up negative emotions. They bring up stuff and then you've got to work through it. So, like, you cut an old pattern and then, like, if you go back to the pattern, it'll reform, right? So, you would now have an opportunity to engage life differently and to think about things and act differently the way you want, It's much easier to do that, right? And so, like, I could go back to thinking the same negative things about my friend, and then it would just recreate the old pattern, right? But instead, I was like, okay, I'm going to approach this relationship just from a position of love and caring and not judgment and anger. And then I'm not going to recreate those old patterns. It's, It's a pretty simplistic explanation, but just so that, you know, you can understand sort of how it works. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. What What else is in your... What else you got up your sleeves? Like what? 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 What other, um, what other plant medicines are you using, <laughs> dude? Like, so I'm not the guy who goes uh, exploring. Like, I'm not the psychonaut who's like, I'm doing all this. Like a bunch. I know a ton of people who do ayahuasca the, uh, all the, the time. shaman. Like, right? Well, they do ayahuasca especially yeah, yeah. all the time, and like they're still all fucked up, man. And I'm like, look, I know. like, like if you're gonna, I t- to me this is therapeutic medicine. Right. And I, I, I respect it and I use it only to help me the way I need help. It is a tool that I use, right? It's like a hammer. Use a hammer to, to build a house, but you don't like just 
use the hammer forever, use the hammer to, to, when it's time. And I think plant medicines are the same thing. But a lot of people, I think, it's a way of avoiding their actual issues. Is like, oh, let's do more ayahuasca and let's go on this crazy psychedelic journey and see all this amazing stuff. And I'm not... I'm not saying I'll never, you know, have fun with them and explore stuff with them. But for me right now, they are, they're medicine that I'm using, uh, to help therapeutically. You know, so what do you, what do you think has helped more the four and a half years of talk therapy or the past year plus of plant medicine? Definitely the plant medicine, but let me, let me give you a caveat. I, the plant medicine has been so effective because I have such a strong therapeutic base. Like I know right. my brain. I've got a great map of my, so like when I, the plant medicine helps me walk the territory, uh, uh, like, but I already have the map, right? So I can walk the territory really fast. Like I, I've done pretty remarkable work, I think for only about, I've been doing it about a year and a half, not even. And, and the, the, and, uh, the amount of progress I've made personally on this stuff is pretty amazing. And it's because of both the therapy and the plant medicine. You know, like, cause I've seen a lot of people, man, who don't have a therapeutic background who like I'm talking about, like they'll just do 60 ayahuasca sessions and like, they 60. don't really, oh dude, I know people who have done 60 and you know, over whatever, four or five years. Right. Okay. Uh, but still that's like, they'll do it every month. Yeah. And it's like, it's like, that's, and they don't get any I better. I feel like once a year is enough. I, I've never be. done, I've never done ayahuasca, so I don't know, but uh -huh. Yeah, I mean, I, probably I'm not going to be doing it a whole lot. Right? <laughs> it's, it's pretty intense. Yeah. Um, yeah, but like, like I know they're doing it for years, and they don't get any better because they're not actually doing the work between the sessions. The medicine is not the work. The medicine is a tool that enables you to do the work, and that's I think a lot of people don't really understand that yet. Yeah. So with all, uh, you know, with all this, you've uh, I think within the past ten years you've been married as well, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, yep. I know you're mad, but yeah, it happened within the past 10 years, uh, four and a half years of the therapy, the plant medicines, uh, you've retired from the literary genre of frat tire. Like what's the number one thing? Oh, and you, uh, you have a child or two, three, three, geez. Wow. Awesome. Congrats on that. So what's like the number one thing that you've learned slash like changed in the past decade? Oh man. Um, God, decades, so much, dude. Ten years, two thousand nine. Yeah. Um, man, like everything. Seriously, yeah. Like ev yeah. Every, what, what, every single the, thing in my life. Yeah. What's the number one thing that you've learned? I, so I, I think I would have to go back to the number one thing that I've learned is that I can't run from my emotions, and I can't run from not just prop. People think of problems as external. I don't. Like, I don't think they are. Like, we, JT and I, you're talking about JT in the intro. JT and I have a saying in the company. We don't have business problems. We only have, we have personal problems mm. that look like business problems. Because if it's just a straight business problem, it's always so easy to solve, right? It's really easy. But, like, the problems that are hard are the interpersonal problems, right? Either relationships or self, right? I'm angry about this thing. Well, why am I angry? And I'm packing that, right? Um, so, th that the biggest lesson for me has been don't run from your emotions. Don't avoid them. Don't anesthetize them turn into them and deal with them, even though it's really painful at first and really hard and really frustrating. Everything I want in life is on the other side of dealing with my emotions, right? And like, like now, like my life is, 
it's funny, man. 10 years ago, 2009, in fact, about this time, 2009 was about when I had the number one book and, and the movie came out and, and all that sort of stuff. I'm 10 years out from that and my life is a hundred times better than it was then. Wow. And it's all because I've dealt with my emotional stuff. So you've written several books, so many, uh, but you have, as I mentioned, you retired from this, from the frat tire. Uh, do you plan on writing another big book anytime soon? Uh, yes. Uh, we, uh, two mentors of mine kind of called me out on it. They've been like, look, man, you've been helping other people for five years with their stuff and that's great. You built a cool company, but it's time for you to get back to writing. And so, um, is Robert Greene one of those mentors? No, fuck no, no. no, no, I, no. Look, I love, Sorry. I love, I love Robert. Robert's yeah, a yeah, friend. Yeah. Robert's yeah. great, but Robert's not my mentor. Like, okay. like, I don't, I don't have any Machiavellian shit I need to do in my life. Like, he's the dude <laughs> I would call for that, right? Like, mm. if I was like in the military, he'd be my mentor. No, my mentors are like much more on the emotional side. They're like they're as smart as Robert, but they're they're more on the emotional side. Um, and they both kind of called me out on this, and so I started about three, four months ago my next sort of memoir or whatever. And it's, it's called that long journey from fratire to fatherhood. And it's basically all the stuff we've been talking about. It's like, it's all that stuff in detail. Like, how did I do this? You know? Amazing. So I want to, I want to wrap up by talking about, uh, cause I think this is really valuable to talk, to talk about what you're, you know, everything you're doing with scribe. Uh, and I know a lot of my listeners, so many of them are podcasters that have an interest in, writing a book so what would you say uh is let's for okay first let's start off what's the benefit of writing a book now in 2019 i i mean what's the be- same as benefit of having a podcast man it's I, in fact i think it's even i think it's even better podcasts are great don't get me wrong but i think a book's even better because a podcast it's really easy to start a podcast it's not easy to be good at a podcast right yeah. like that requires skill but starting one is easy Books are like sort of like that in that I guess it's easy to start writing books, but it's hard to publish a book. If you publish a book and if it's even decent, you get a lot of credit for that. It's hard. And if it's good, you get a ton of credit, right? And if it's great, then it's like, you know, you're to the moon. And so like like the the benefit is authority credibility it is uh status it is within um, your industry too right right and with fans or whatever it's attention it's a hook for media it's a way to spread your message it's a way to influence and impact others it's a way to leave a legacy like a book is still it is one of the only permanent things you can do in media like as cool as podcasts are they're very ephemeral right like i mean I, how many people go back and listen to your first or second or third podcast? Probably actually, not a lot, right? It's actually a great question. I try not to look at that because those episodes are so bad. Uh, I hope no one. So <laughs> well, I'd rather not look. I mean, I can tell you, I had a podcast uh, uh, for about two and a half years. It did really, it still does crazy well. Even oh, though wow, I did, actually, uh, yeah. Um, yeah, so it doesn't, it, it's more about like helping guys understand women and stuff. But like, um, uh, like, it you can I, when I I could see clearly we'd release a new episode we'd have you know whatever right. forty fifty thousand downloads the first week but then you look at the old episodes and they like they, they did fine but they're way way lower books is a totally different thing right because a, a pod, most people for podcasts think of them as ephemeral 
in the moment content. Books are lasting content. They evergreen. are permanence. It is evergreen, right? And so, and look, there's space for both. They're both fantastic, but um, it's really hard to to make a, a permanent, everlasting, evergreen mark on the world with one podcast. You've got to constantly do it, right? Constant episodes. A book. You write a great. Harper Lee wrote one great book. And I guess actually she did just come out with another book, but like that's it. That's all she's really ever done is one great book. And then you're like authors are judged by their best book. And so if you write, especially if you have a bunch in you, you write a bunch, you're going to be judged by the best one. And they're all going to help you, but the best one's going to be the one that really kind of moves the needle for you. What do most self publishing authors miss or, or, or do wrong? Um, like overall, yeah, the, the, the ones that mo- most of them, like they, they don't understand the key to publishing a great book. For, like, for, let's forget the content for a second. They they don't understand that they've got to invest in everything around the content in the book, the cover, the design of the interior, um, all of that sort of stuff, right? Like, it, I mean, you either have to hire a great company like us, and there aren't there's really not many in the self-publishing space or you've got to manage a bunch of freelancers who are good at it on your own, which is a pain in the ass. And so like a lot of them will, they'll invest all this time in the, in the content, which is fantastic. And then they'll like spend 200 bucks on a cover or 500 bucks on a cover. And it's like, that's not going to cut it. Your cover is going to look terrible. And then people are going to think you're stupid. Right. And which is unfair and irrational, but everyone judges books by the cover. Right. So instead of fighting that, why don't you just invest in a great cover? And then the exterior of the book can reflect the interior. Right. And so it's, it's, it's understanding that, that they've got to invest as much in the exterior professionalism as the interior one. So tell us. I know you and JT do, do such great work at Scribe. Tell us, for the people that are interested in getting help with publishing their books, uh, what you guys do at Scribe. Yeah, I mean, we're just a self-publishing services firm. So like, if, if you want to write, publish, and market your book, we're the best company in the industry, right? So we'll, Agreed. we'll either we'll do it for you and no, definitely go research everyone else. Cause you'll, it just makes us look better. Right. And you'll, and our, and you'll make our, our prices will be like, man, I can't believe how like great, how, how great their service is relative to the prices in the industry. So we love it when people talk to competitors, it always helps us. But, um, the, our prices start at like 10 grand and go up from there, right? And so a lot of people can't afford it. I get it. So if, if you're listening and you want to write a book and you're like, oh, that's way out of my wheelhouse, no problem. Go to scribebookschool.com because literally every single thing that we do for our clients, we did videos about and have blog posts about. And it, I mean, it is the exact information because my, my thought is if you can't afford us, That's cool. I still love books and I still want you to write a book. I'm happy to tell you how to do it on your own because people aren't paying us for information. They're paying us for services. They're paying us for our time and for our expertise, right? And so like I hate people who charge for information about that stuff. Like there's certain things that make a lot of sense to charge for information, but like everyone wants to write a book. Like I'm the reason we started this company is to help everyone on earth write a book. And the only way we can do that is to give our, the information away for free because most people can't afford us. Right. Yeah, I agree. I have a very similar model where, you know, so many people want to start a podcast and 
my podcasting course, my flagship course that's very professionally done is free. It's completely free. But our services, our marketing and production services for serious podcasters, that is not free. Uh, and it's very expensive. So I agree. I'm on board with you. Uh, what, what's the link again for that? Scribebookschool.com. When I first started this podcast, I had no clue what I was doing, and it showed. This podcast was terrible in the beginning, so much so that when people tell me today that they listen to early episodes, I cringe because it was just that bad. But along the way, of course, I figured things out and started growing as I was going. But I wish I knew these things in the beginning. I could have saved so much time, money, and just sheer embarrassment. Now I'm solving for all of the unknown variables of podcasting for you with my brand new course, How to Become a Rockstar Podcaster. Oh, and by the way, it's completely free. In the course, I give away every single one of my secrets from marketing to building a business around your podcast and monetizing your podcast without ads. I put a ton of effort into this course over the past few months, and it is extremely professional. And this is something that people around me said I should be selling for 400 bucks, but I said, no, I am giving this away for free. I couldn't think of something better to share with you. So for free access to my new course, How to Become a Rockstar Podcaster, you can go to jordanparis.com forward slash course. That's jordanparis.com forward slash course for free access to my brand new course, How to Become a Rockstar Podcaster. I look forward to seeing you in the course. Let's build a business around your podcast. Scribebookschool.com, scribewriting.com for all of the publishing services there. Uh, at Tucker Max on Twitter, Tucker Max. Dot com. Tucker, I appreciate you. Uh, this has been an excellent conversation. I got one final question for you. Okay, ready? Mm -hmm. If you could teach a course at a university, course of your creation or otherwise, what would it be? I mean, the cheap, easy answer would be like how to write a book, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. No, like, uh, no, actually, I'll tell you what I would do. So, um, because we're building this product right now, uh, we have... We have uh, uh, a scribe professional where we interview people and we get the book out of them. We have guided author, which is where they write the book themselves with our guidance and we kind of walk them through and then we edit and publish. What we don't have is a memoir writing course and, and like a program. And so I'm actually doing it right now. And I'm realizing, and I knew this like instinctually, I just hadn't thought about it. Writing a memoir is a fundamentally different thing than writing a nonfiction book. Very different. And, and even though they're both nonfiction, they're extremely different. And like what this is really teaching me, and I knew it, I just hadn't thought about it, is everyone, everyone wants to write a book, right? But most people actually don't want to write a business book, nor would it make sense for them, or even a personal development book. They want to tell their story. And which is fucking beautiful. I mean, it's all the books I've written are me telling my story, right? And writing this, I'm like, oh man, this is an amazing opportunity for me to te to teach people how to actually understand themselves and how to all the therapy I've done, all the work I've done. I can tell people how to do it. Okay, fine. That's just me lecturing. If I actually teach people how to how to tell their story to the world, it's actually you kind of have to do the work to tell your story effectively. So, to answer your question, that's the course I would teach.
because I'm literally making it, and I think it's going to be mind-blowing. Love to hear it. Tucker Max, you are the man. Thank you very much. By the way, I'm very much looking forward to that. I hope you blast it out everywhere when it's ready. We will. Uh, You're welcome to come anytime, man. We've reached the end of this episode of Growth Mindset University. For more keys to success and methods to inspire your entrepreneurial spirit, head to jordanparis.com slash course and enroll in our free course to elevate your podcast to the next level. Be sure to pass the show along to someone you know who will benefit from the lessons learned in each episode and we'll catch you and them on the next episode of Growth Mindset University.